Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Good morning. It is good to see everyone. If you have a Bible with you, open up with me to the book of Romans. If you don't have one with you, you're more than welcome to pick up a black hardback version that might be underneath a seat around you. Romans chapter 6 is where we will be. Romans chapter 6. As we get started, I want to say thank you to Burgundy for filling in the pulpit last week. Um, I was up in South Carolina. The reason I wasn't with you is I was on an aeroplane while she was preaching. And I got up there, did kind of what I needed to do intro-wise, and then booked it to my, my room so I could listen to, to Burgundy's sermon. And it was amazing. I thought she did a fantastic job. And so I want to say thank you to Burgundy um, for her willingness uh, to come up and to preach. And I love that spirit about our church. I love the uh, kind of community feel we have to getting things done and then the um, just um, courage to uh, go and to do and be obedient to what the, the Spirit is calling us to do. Um, now, I was in South Carolina for a few days to give a handful of lectures um, to a program that they host up at the small Methodist college in South Carolina. Um, the program is called One Life, and it is a gap year discipleship program. I had never heard of it. Apparently, it's hosted by different universities, but it itself is its own thing, and kind of, I think there's five or seven locations around the nation. Uh, and so gap year, it's, it's meant for students who have just graduated high school but aren't yet going into full-time uh, university uh, with their undergraduate courses. Um, and so this particular gap year program was centered around discipleship. So it's centered around becoming more and more like Christ, um, trying to unlearn some stuff that you've picked up along the way until you're 18, 19 years old, and trying to start to learn all of the different things that it means to, to be a Christian and to follow after Christ. Um, and it was a very uh, unique program. Right away, I could tell something special kind of was going on there. I think anytime you have a group of people who kind of commit to be with and for one another for a year's worth of time, this deep sense of community and relationship is formed. Um, you could tell very quickly that they had their kind of own schedule, their own kind of world, their own language and own jargon, and that they were very much committed to discipleship. Um, and so uh, I showed up, and the, no one had their cell phones. They were giving them up that night because there's this big, like, security briefcase. Looks like nuclear codes might be in there. And they only get their phones, these about 25 students, um, for one day a week. And then they put them up and lock them up and take them away. Um, and it is, I mean, yeah, my palms are sweating just thinking about it. Um, it's something they had committed to do and had been doing now for a handful of months. And it was odd because talking to them felt like talking to people who don't constantly have their cell phones. Not just in the sense that they weren't holding something, right, or perhaps distracted to look down at what else was going on or it would catch their attention, but in the sense that you had to talk to them about different things than you talk to someone who has access constantly to the latest news and sports and things of that nature, right? We have a very comfortable safety net in this world. I'm very thankful for as an introvert, which is that you can go a whole conversation just talking about sports, okay? If that's not working, go to weather, if you're still there in the general vicinity, you can move on to news. And there's always, right, headlines that we read every day. We stay connected. Um, when you're talking to someone without that, it very much gets real a lot quicker. It's just like, who are you? Tell me about you. What have you been up to? What are you going to do? This is what I've been up to. This is what I've, I'm going to do. 
Um, you, you notice very quickly by these students that they got to what we'll call like God talk very quickly. Um, like they'd obviously been trained that this is an area and a space and a time. We're going to talk freely about our faith. We're going to ask questions about our faith. And so, you know, in our world, there's always that kind of like dividing line, particularly when we're not in church or at a Bible study or community group between um, just regular talk with other people and then that kind of like God talk, where now you're talking about God and uh, perhaps getting into more uncomfortable situations and things of that nature. And what the, the, the program had created was this kind of countercultural community. Um, and like, so we'd walk into the cafeteria uh, together to eat lunch, and the rest of the students at the university kind of look over at them like, oh, that, that's them, right? Um, they'd be like, yeah, they think we're a cult. And I'm like, well, they really? Um, you know, they had their own, their own little thing. I was like, in a weird way, it's a, it's a beautiful picture of the church, I think. It's like best functioning, right? It's a community that cares about one another. Um, they practice different things. Um, they together, um, with intentionality and encouragement, pursue discipleship, this process of becoming more and more like Christ. There was a type of program that made me think, and I think would make you think, if you saw it in action and you were there for, for about a week, you'd think, man, if only I could have done this. If only I could have had access to something like this between the ages of 18 years old and 20 years old in that liminal period between high school and college to learn how to kind of grow up to learn how to kind of become an adult, to learn how to live a life outside of my parents' house where I'm reading the scriptures and engaging in Bible study and going to church and knowing what it's like to live with the community. I was wondering while I was up there how you and I might be able to participate in this kind of intentional discipleship um, because I think most of us aren't able or available to like unplug for a year go off to like this new monastic community and be a monk or a nun, focus solely on the Word of God, get rid of all other distractions. It'd be nice. It'd probably be very helpful for most of us, um, but we're not really able to do that. And so in light of being young and having a gap year, in light of completely unplugging and going away, retreating, what are some things that we can do in everyday life to kind of get us out of any stuckness that we're in. I think that's one of the big problems in the Christian life. It's easy to get stuck. It's easy to feel like, I don't know what's next, what should be next. Or I've been a Christian for this many years, I've been going to church for this many years, and I just kind of feel like I'm in the same place. Um, and so Romans 6 is where we'll be. Uh, let's read together the first few verses here. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? They had just been talking about how the more sin abounds, the more grace abounds. And so that's the question. Should we keep sinning so that grace can keep abounding? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul here ties the Christian identity to the death and resurrection of their Lord, of Jesus the Christ, and he locates it in baptism. He says baptism is the beginning of this journey for followers of Christ. There's this language of movement. We're walking as we raise out of the water. And his primary answer to why the Christians in the first century can't keep living the way they had been living was because 
they had crucified themselves to that way of life. They were a very different people by nature, at their essence. What had happened to Jesus in baptism had also happened to them. And so they died to the world. They died to sin. They died to the slavery that sin has over us, the hold that it has over us. And then coming out of the waters, like Jesus coming out of the tomb, they have been resurrected. And they live a new life. Jesus, as the resurrected one, lives a new life. He has new opportunities in front of him. He has new availabilities in front of him, new um, possibilities in front of him. And Paul's saying Christians are these type of people because of our baptism, because of our um, union with Christ, because we've been united with him and our life lies in his, we are as well a cross-shaped people, a cruciform people. We are people who live like the one who got crucified, these lives of sacrificial self-giving love. We are not only a cruciform, cross-shaped people, but we're a resurrection people. We're people who live in light of the new world that is opened up because of Jesus' resurrection. And because of all of these truths, Paul says, we're called to walk in newness of life. And this is indeed the task for Christians, to somehow start to walk in a new life, to somehow start to live and experience and relate everyone around us in a way different than we did before, in a way different than we would have if we had not had the Father and the Son and the Spirit, in a way that would only make sense because of our faith in Jesus, would only make sense because of the encouragement and guidance and comfort given to us by the Spirit. I've been brought up to um, the school to lecture on Uh, culture in Christ and how Christians have traditionally tried to engage or disengage culture. Um, And what you find out very quickly is if you you really are honest and do the work is where your culture um, begins, say, national culture, American culture, where that begins, and then your religion, let's say Christianity, starts, where that ends and that starts, is very difficult to figure out. Um, It's very difficult to disentangle those things. Um, We've been shaped from our birth to want to walk in certain ways, to think that certain ways are the right ways to walk in. And then Jesus shows up on the scene, and he flips some things around. He says, I know you've been trained. I know it's, it's a virtue in your world to seek security. He says, but in, in this new world, you've already got security in the Father. There's no one who can take care of you better or more. So there's no reason to be anxious. There's no reason to be worried. And now you can sacrifice. You can give of your finances. You can give of your time. You can give of your resources. You don't have to hoard it to yourself. Why? Because you're secure. You don't need the bank account, the 401k account. You don't need any of those things to keep you secure. There's an old life, and now a a new life is available. And if you sit down and, and you try to differentiate between all the things that were taught, the values, the ideas, the beliefs, the behaviors that we kind of catch growing up, And then the things that Jesus calls us to as part of the church, what you find is that oftentimes they are very different, if not contradictory. And at the same time, you find that what Jesus has called us to do is very difficult. Very, very difficult. And it takes training. It takes discipline. It takes formation. As a hypothetical, if it took you 30 years to become a Christian before you were converted, 
that's not 30 years of neutral time. That's not 30 years where you just existed in a vacuum as a free agent. It's like, I wonder which team I'll land on eventually. Christ, boom, let's go. Things are happening over those 30 years. You're being formed in the shape of some culture, of some isms, right? Materialism, consumerism, whatever those things might be. To become a Christian then requires you to take on this task of discipleship. If it took you 30 years to get to where you were at that moment, I would say maybe it's just a safe bet to say it might take you 30 years to get fully kind of disentangled. Which is why it's okay to be patient with ourselves, with ourselves when, when Jesus um, tells us to, to forgive and forgive generously and we find that hard to do. Well, it should be hard to do, right? You've, you've lived a very long time as an unforgiving person or at least with shallow examples of forgiveness in front of you that you participate in. As a, you know, a Southerner, we have this passive aggressiveness, right? We're not really ever angry at people, yet we hate almost everybody. I'm used to that type of forgiveness, right? Jesus calls us to a forgiveness that's altogether different, and it takes work and discipline and effort and failure to get there. This is a task we call discipleship. Now, apart from unplugging and, again, going to a monastery and spending a few years solely focused on this, what are some things that we can do here now, you and I, as we seek to walk in this newness of life? I want to suggest four things this morning, four practices, if you will, of cruciform and resurrection people, um, and they will kind of roll in a cycle that kind of, I think, self-repeats and gets us closer and closer to the image of Christ. The first one is this. Christians need to practice the discipline of awareness awareness. You and I, in Christ, are people who are awake. Going through the waters of baptism and coming up in the life of Jesus' resurrection, the life of his spirit, is in a sense like taking a cold shower in the morning. And the grogginess kind of comes out of our eyes. Our mind starts to, to gear up a little bit faster, and we slowly start to awake to the reality of the world in front of us. This is, I think, an apt metaphor for what it means to come to faith in Christ. It's it's your waking up to the reality of what God has done in Jesus. It's, It's waking up to the reality of who you are and who you're called to be because of the work that Jesus has done. And we're all in different stages of awakeness. Some of us are very much awake. We're alert. We're bright eyed. Some of us are still kind of like, I'm not sure if I'm awake or not. Some of us are a little bit of a little bit groggy, but we're waking up to this new world, this new reality, this new way of thinking, this new way of living. Christians are called to become aware, particularly of the presence and activity of God. We live in a secular world, which means a world um, without need for God, um, and so that's the way most of our businesses are constructed. That's the way most of our media functions. That's the way most of our everyday. Um, lifestyle functions. When you go to the grocery store, when you go to the mall, when you go to the daycare, when you go to the school, there's no need for God. And this is useful in some senses because we can not just always argue on the things we differ on when it comes to God. Um, This is difficult in other areas of our life because it's easy then to get the impression that in no way, at no time, do we need God. And perhaps God's just not very present or very active. But to wake up, to have awareness as a Christian is to be aware that God is always present and that God is always active. One of the 
the more basic beliefs in any monotheistic faith is that God is everywhere fully present. And we often, I think, trip ourselves using this language of presence to describe other realities. Um, So we talk about God not being in school or being in a certain school or God being taken out of the courtroom or the, you know, Washington, D.C. By the way, I don't think God is ever going to take up residence in in Washington, D.C. We talk God being present and not present in other places, and there's scriptural precedent for this. It's a metaphor, though. It's language that's used to try to connotate something. It's not metaphysical language. It's not reality language. We're not saying God actually ends at this door, and when you walk past it, you're now in this like void of godlessness. God is no less present to you in the hallways of a sixth grade public school than he is in a sanctuary of a church surrounded by a choir singing hallelujahs. And God is no less present to you in a jail cell in the Middle East than he is anywhere else in your home, sitting with your family, reading a Bible story together. His presence is everywhere and at all times. And the only reason that you and I doubt this is because we fail to be aware of it. Now, certainly there are times when God does not feel present. The issue at those moments, though, is not his, his distance. It's our inability to perceive his closeness. We live in a world where God is always active, where God is always on the move, God is always working. Sometimes the way we talk about miracles betrays this belief that God more or less stands back and lets the world function, and every now and then we get our hands in and we get kind of messy. God does a couple miracles and then steps back again. Christians would believe, though, from the Scriptures that God is active in and through everything. That, in fact, the only reason anything— Creation, plant life, animal life, you and I are alive and existing today is because he wanted it to. He holds all things into existence with his will. Every moment he desires it to be rather than it to not be. God is always active in our lives and your lives. Now again, the temptation is in a secular world to lose that sense of presence, lose that sense of activity. So it's easy for you and I to get to moving in our life um, and to stop kind of talking about what God is doing. Stop talking about how God has met us in certain places. But we need to become aware that this is a a God-saturated world. Um, We need to create a habit, I think, of slowing down, of pressing pause, of taking a deep breath, and practicing an awareness of God's presence. I think prayer is one of the things God has given us. The discipline, he's a tool he's he's given us. Prayer creates space in our day where we're re-able to open up our eyes to the ultimate truth of God's presence and activity. Prayer gives us an opportunity to slow down and to acknowledge God's presence and his activity. So we might start with awareness, and we might move into the next 
discipline, the next practice of resurrection people, which would be learning. We're a people who are awake, and we're a people whose minds are being renewed. We are a people who are taking in new information and analyzing it and seeing what's right and what's wrong. We are a people who are comparing new information that we're getting to old information that we had and having to see which is right and which is wrong. Now, to be sure, following Jesus does not mean you have to go back to school. Breathe a sigh of relief. doesn't mean it's not a program at a university. It's not a class that you can take in a community center. But it's no less a call for us to engage our, our minds. It means a couple things. First, we have to be open to new ideas. Christians are, are called to be people who can engage with new things. We, are, we have created such an, a, a remarkable world in which it's so easy to create an echo chamber so quickly. Where all we hear are our opinions and all we see are our practices. And again, this starts to make it difficult for us to recognize what is Christianity versus what is just cultural practices or cultural expectations. You might think praying in a certain way is just a Christian thing, and then you go to another culture, and you're like, well, they're not praying with their eyes closed or their hands folded or their head down. And you think, well, I guess, yeah, those are all cultural things that we brought to prayer. Prayer itself is a different thing. It can be adapted and embraced in in different cultures. We have to be open to these new and challenging ideas. To be a learning people means that we know that there are new things to learn. More and more I find the hallmark of a truly educated person is someone who knows how much they don't know, who studied just enough to realize there's so much they'll never fully grasp. It means also that we've got to be willing to unlearn things. And this, my friends, is very, very hard. Uh, I was brought up, we were talking about culture, and anytime you start talking about American culture and trying to you know, compare and contrast with the Christian religion, um, quickly the idea of like nationalism, loyalty to one's nation, um, war, violence, those things get brought up. Usually when I go places, they're like, do not talk about nationalism. Here was the opposite. They're like, we want you to talk about this. I was like, are you sure that you want me to talk about this? They're like, yeah, we want you to talk about this. I was like, you say that now, but as soon as I start talking about this, I'm going to look in the back, and you can be like, just stop. We don't want you to talk about this. Well, we, we started to. We started talking about our country. We started about the beliefs we have of our country and of our faith and the way they go together and perhaps don't go together. And, and for many of these students, it was the first time they had been faced with an idea that perhaps— their nation was not the perfect embodiment of this religion. That there were ways in which perhaps they were incompatible. Not uniquely evil as a nation, but just because it's the nation and not the kingdom of God. And you can see in one's eyes the time they're first introduced to a new idea, and they have to make a decision. Do I give myself permission to entertain this? Do I give myself permission Because it's difficult, and it's uncomfortable, and it's unsettling. And I'm more and more convinced a big part of the task of Christianity is to unlearn things. Is to be willing to put things on the table and go, if that's not the case, then take it away. I have no commitments. There are no sacred cows in the things I believe or the things that I practice. If Jesus calls me towards something else, then I'll do it. I'll go there. I'll, I'll think that. 
We're called to learn. Learning is not just about knowledge either. It's, it's growing in wisdom. Wisdom being knowing what to do with what we know. Knowing how to react in various um, situations. Learning how to apply the teachings of Jesus and the scriptures to different situations at different times with different people. And so we become aware we are people of learning. And then the next discipline, the third, would be reflection. As we're made awake, as we begin to learn and unlearn, we need to become a people that can sit down and pause to reflect on all that we are and all that has happened to us. They say that experience is the best teacher. I would disagree. I'd say experience with reflection is a great teacher. Experience as experience is often not a teacher at all. And too many of us just live kind of this way, right? Experience, 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 experience. And we never stop to process things. To think about, like, well, what does that mean for my life? What does that mean for me? I think this is one of the temptations we get into after church, this church, other churches, after a sermon or worship. We feel convicted about something. And instead of spending time to reflect on it, or later in the week, marking out time to reflect on it, something else happens. And something else happens. Before we know it, we're just in this train of constant experiences. It's experience with reflection, I think, that gets us um, closer to where we would like to be, to sit down and ask questions like, what's challenging us right now? What obstacles are there right now in our life? How faithful am I being? Where am I being unfaithful? Why is this happening? Why do I feel so insecure right now? It's one thing to notice that you're insecure, to notice that you're anxious, It's another thing to ask, why? What's the source of this? Is this an incorrect belief I have in God and his providence and love for me? Is this something that is ill-placed and doesn't belong in this situation that I just need to think through and, and disentangle? As Christians, when we're called to reflect, I think it's important that we never do this alone. But that never stops just with ourselves by ourselves. I think we're called to reflect with community, whether that's with our family or our friends, with community groups, with different um, groups here in the, the church. We're called to think through what has been happening to us. And then the fourth one, awareness, learning, reflection, is action. Christians are a people of action. We're people who walk in the newness of spirit. Not just the people who are aware of the spirit, and not just the people who learn about the Spirit, and not just the people who reflect about the Spirit, but the people who walk in the Spirit, people who do Spirit-filled things, people who listen to the Spirit and go out in obedience and do it. We are a people of action, and if you never get around to action, then you're largely missing the point. Most of this is irrelevant, if not worthless. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do the things I have commanded you to do. Sometimes, at a certain point, you have to stop theorizing, and you have to just try. Sometimes, at a certain point, you have to stop worrying, and you have to just do. Sometimes, at a certain point, you have to stop rationalizing, and you just have to obey. And there's lots of things in Scripture that make very little sense for us. You, you read and you wonder, why would anyone ever do this? How could this possibly be okay for me or good for other people? And oftentimes, practice is the only way into the mystery of that command. 
Um, it's when you do something that you understand why sometimes things have been commanded. Um, I never understood quite why God would be so concerned with honoring your father or mother. As a kid, I was pretty good at not doing it. It was a skill. And it wasn't until around the time I was in college that I had a big decision in front of me that I decided to, against my own thoughts, against my what I thought was right and correct, to go with a decision with my parents. It wasn't until that and the years that followed after that that I realized there's this special blessing that comes with honoring your parents. There's a special blessing that comes with recognizing the authority God has given them in your life. An authority which doesn't end, by the way, when you graduate high school or you move out of college. Until I'd done it, I would have never realized it. Similar with the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, communion for me. I never really understood as a kid growing up why this was something that Christians did. When I became a pastor, I never really knew why this was a part of the worship service, why it was so important. But it was when I did it, and when I did it every week, and when I did it inviting everyone to the table, and when I did it with somebody in my faith community serving it to me, not just taking it on my own, that I learned all of these new and important and faithful things about communion. It was the doing that led me into the understanding. And so often this is the case in our lives. Action is the most fundamental of all the practices I've mentioned this morning. We are aware so that we can be animated. We are learning so that we can live. We're reflecting so that we can respond. And so the question to us this morning, my admonition to you would be, are are you stuck? Do you feel stuck? Are you looking for the next step forward? Plant your flag into one of these these action steps. Plant your flag somewhere in this cycle. Practice awareness. Practice learning. Practice reflection. Practice action. It doesn't just end with action, then it loops around again. And you can do this with forgiveness. You can do this with love. You can do this with service. You can do this with prayer. Every key aspect of Christian discipleship. I think can be advanced in our lives with when community, with our brothers and sisters beside us, we, we walk through these practices of faithfulness, these practices of attending to God's presence and his activity. Nothing in Christian worship allows us to do it as much as when we come to the table, when we celebrate the Eucharist, when we become aware to what God has done and is doing in our lives. When we learn that what God has done is not only just something for God to have appreciated, but something that we are involved in, something that we participate in. We find our identities united in Jesus. When we reflect on that great truth, then we're called to action. We eat, and when we drink, and when we turn around and we walk back to our seats, but then eventually back to our houses and our workplaces and our neighborhoods. To go and to live the life of Christ, to think the thoughts of Christ, to love the love of Christ.